Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Warfighter podcast. This is the third instalment of the education series. Colin, hello, hello. Hi, back in the land of the living. I mean, as in from your high-powered conversations you've been having on the ski soaps. There's <laughs> many evergreen content, but let, let's go there, shall we? How many trips this year have you been on ski? Well, yeah, uh, th- th- this was more just, I was, it was more, tra- it was a training mission. It wasn't, I wasn't really doing skiing. It wasn't for me. Uh, I, I was there mainly working. Uh, 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 I believe you're doing, being, you know, training best, others. Best let's put it that way. Dad. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Mega. Right. Well, before we jump into the episode, which I think is an interesting one, we've managed to yet again identify an episode which is very visual and trying to communicate that over an audio medium, which hopefully we've achieved it. Before I go into that, I've got a pseudo apology. I promised the listeners we'd, we'd be challenging Colin and hearing you and how you perform under pressure with our sponsor, which is, is Conductor, their crisis management tool. But having reviewed it with the CEO of the company, Robert, he's provided some other suggestions and thought we could improve it in different ways. So we have delayed it until next month, but it is going to be mega. I'm really looking forward to it. And Sounds uh, like he's making it harder. Oh, couldn't possibly comment. Well, while I was ch- talking to him, I was smiling the whole time, if that helps. <laughs> yeah, just, just keep it to yourself. I, I prefer a surprise. <laughs> well, that's lucky. Can't wait. And thank you, as always, to uh, Conductor for their support. So just a word as we introduce this education session. I guess education, you know, it's always got a serious connotation. We're trying to, not to make it too deep. But John Hoggard... John works at the technology school within the Defence Academy. So look at military technology and within that subset is our little world of simulation. He teaches pretty much daily both military and civilian people who are going into various roles, either deploying simulation or setting the requirements, that sort of thing. So people really need to know the ins and outs of it and, and the detail. So a great person to have on this episode. And can I say probably one of the more enjoyable ones to record because He's an absolute riot. So I don't know how much Tom has had to cut out of this, but to keep it sane, but it was a very enjoyable episode and I hope that comes through. I'm very pleased to introduce a professional educator, John Hoggard, who is a lecturer at Cranford University at the UK Defence Academy. Welcome. It's near Shrivenham, isn't it? It is. It is near Shrivenham. Thank you for that, Colin. So yes, hi everybody. My name is John Hoggard. As Colin said, I'm a lecturer at Cranfield University. So based at the Defence Academy, which means I mainly educate military and defence civilians. So people from Abbey Woods and those kind of establishments. So I've done this job for 14 years now. I originally came to the Defence Academy a really long time ago as a MSc student. So I actually did the MSc in the subject I now teaching. So proper poacher turned gamekeeper. And prior to that, I was literally a rocket scientist at DSTL for a number of years. And briefly prior to that, I was an experimental particle physicist. So I've had <laughs> I've had a, yeah. an interesting career over the years, but you can do that when you're in, in your early 50s. So, we did agree yeah. we weren't going to get into space time because that's that's very dangerous. <laughs> we, um, we'll we, stick yeah, to it. Space time is a completely different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so the topic is about real time graphics. You know, even when we say that, it kind of doesn't make sense to us. But can you just give us a bit of an intro to that? 
So for those that don't know, so DSTL is the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. And actually, John, one thing you haven't mentioned, although you've said your course, you haven't said the, the name of the course you're lecturing on. So what are you now an expert at? Okay, so the title of the degree is the MSc in Defence Simulation and Modelling. So it, it's effectively, it is what it says on the tin. So that's the master's programme that I teach on. I teach on other courses, but that's the primary MSc programme that I teach they say, on. And when they say modelling, this may be a really stupid question, but we're we talking about like 3D modelling, because that's what jumps to my mind, or is it kind of modelling, like war game modelling or modelling simulations out so the degree covers that gamut Mm -hmm. of the different types of modeling everything from so we've got the statisticians talking Mm -hmm. about discrete and continuous simulation and how you do statistical trials possibly using computer simulation to support that we go through wargaming which could be both traditional desktop tabletop wargaming with counters right through to computer-based or computer-supported wargaming. And then you get into kind of the area that I suspect people, when they talk about modelling, people think of race cars and fast jets and tanks and dismounted infantry. And I'm more heavily involved in that side of it. The sort of what people might think of as your sort of computer game type modelling, what you see in a computer game. And that's kind of the error I, I fall into. So our subject is real-time graphics, but even saying those words, I'm not too sure what that means. So if you just give us an idea of what we're going to get into. Of course, happy to do so. So from my point of view, and so this is a personal opinion, but the way we talk about real-time graphics on our MSc course is the idea of perceptible real-time. Because of the way computers work and the way monitors update and things like that, it's the perception that everything is happening as a continuous stream, but that can't actually be true, which I suspect we're going to end up talking about. What it basically means is if you, as a fast jet pilot in a military simulator, move your flight control to the left, your simulations should respond effectively in a way that you feel like that's how the real aircraft would behave. The aeroplane starts to bank, the scenery going underneath you starts to move in a believable way. If you're a dismounted infantry and you stand up from behind a wall, the scenery should appear in a believable manner, perceptively real-time. So that's basically what we're going to be talking about, how we fool the human, the person actually involved in the sim, into believing that what's actually happening is a continuous stream into their brains to which they can react for our listeners and, and maybe that you know someone that's in the mod right now been posted into a simulation role maybe don't have a big background in simulation or understand even the word ray tracing this podcast talking about it what, what are they what's the main effort what are they going to get out of it and why is it important to them yeah that's a very reasonable question to ask so for me people generally come across simulation from my point of view in the military as a training thing because fast jet pilots now learn to fly their sims dismounted infantry are doing things like the dismounted close combat training and possibly using virtual battle space as a desktop trainer so it's an understanding for me that there are really good things these types of simulations can do but equally there's a limitation without spending 
potentially huge sums of money to aspire to get what you actually want out of your simulation. There is always a limit to what these kind of systems can actually do. And as the MOD moves towards doing more and more in simulation, because of costs and manpower, I want people to have a better understanding of what they're potentially going to be buying in the future as they move into a more computer-based simulation world. When we're thinking about graphics, and I think most of us are aware of pixels on a screen or a projection, what's going on behind there? What, what's going on within the CPU or the GP, the graphics card, yeah. if we like? So we talk about something known as the rendering pipeline, which is quite a grand term, but it also helps you imagine what's actually going on, the concept of a pipeline. Basically, what's happening is, let's say you're in a tank simulator, something like the Combined Arms Tactical Trainer, you're a gunner in that vehicle. So you're scanning your horizon or scanning your arc. So you're moving your controls. You're basically giving inputs to some form of simulation system. At some point, the simulation has to go, okay, that's the last input I'm going to take from you for this tiniest fraction of a second. Because what I have to do now is look at where you're looking out of your viewer or your target, or your sights, and I have to see everything that you can see. That might be non-dynamic objects like the road you're driving down, the trees on the terrain, any buildings you're hiding behind, but also because you're linked into loads of other simulations at, the, at CAT, there might be vehicles that have just suddenly appeared within your field of view, so they have to be taken into account as well. So at some point, the simulation has to go, okay, stop. And for a fraction of a second, it basically freezes the sim, looks at what you can see, and effectively takes a photograph of it and, and calculates everything from the furthest away objects to the nearest objects and basically builds a 3D model and then constructs that in a way that makes it look like a two-dimensional photograph applies any effects it needs to do, smoke particle effects, lighting effects, and then basically says to the graphics card, this is the photograph I want you to put on the screen. And then the graphics card starts up in one corner of the screen. Let's just, for example, say top left. And if you're on a 1920 by 1080 screen, your normal sort of TV resolution these days, then it has to go 1920 pixels across colouring in the dots, and then it drops down one line, and it does that 1,080 times. And at the bottom corner, it goes, done that, at which point that image is on the screen, but your simulation is already grabbed the next image, is already giving it to the CPU to process, because as soon as that image is on the screen, it's going to get binned off, and your whole system is now going to ask your graphics card to do it again. And that's why we talk about perceptively real-time, because if it's running properly, you'll never know that there's these tiny micro-freezes and blanks on the screen over and over again. That's why it's perceptively real-time. Does that make sense? Yeah, so probably that's a good point to bring in frame rate and refresh rate, and I probably never realised there's a difference. Okay, so... A refresh rate is how often the screen, be it 
your laptop monitor, your desktop, nice curved Samsung G9, beautiful, very expensive monitor, your projection system if you've got a dome, your VR headset if you're running inside a VR headset. They all have a refresh rate. And this is based on how the old cathode ray tube CRTs used to work because the magnets used to bend the electron beam and it used to scan down the screen so the electron beam could get back up to the top of the monitor. You basically put in a blanking frame. So that's your refresh rate. That's how fast you can draw new stuff on the screen. So most modern televisions are like 60 hertz, 60 frames per second. Modern day gaming monitors are actually much faster than that. 120 hertz, 144. I think Asus have just brought out a 540 hertz monitor, which is some ridiculous refresh rate. But the graphics card has a limitation of how fast it can get new data on the screen. It's basically that rendering pipeline. How quickly can the CPU arrange the scene, build up all the triangular shapes within the scene, and then give that information to the graphics card for it to then scan across the screen, rasterizations, the process we call it, and get that information on the screen. And ideally, you want the ratio to either be exactly the same, one-to-one, or a fractional difference. Because if you're updating your screen at the same rate your graphics card can put new information on the screen, then you end up with this nice, neat image that for every momentary blank of the screen, you've got a brand new piece of information from your graphics card. You might have a graphics card that is struggling a little bit. It's got too much information to process. And if it's clever about it, it'll actually drop down to, say, 30 frames per second, in which case your TV or your monitor is effectively refreshing twice, and it's only every other refresh of that monitor do you get new information from the graphics card. And this is where we find that there's that interesting difference between a military sim and commercial off-the-shelf gaming technology because in the games industry, they go, your game isn't updating fast enough, either drop the quality of the graphics or buy a faster graphics card. Whereas in the defense simulation world, it's like, what's the minimum I need for the training I'm trying to do? I'm not allowed to go below that. Can you imagine a fast jet pilot who's just about to come into land with his, with his aircraft and he's got these micro-fine controls and suddenly his flight simulator locks up for a tenth of a second because suddenly all of the trees appear in the scene. That would be unacceptable in a military sense. But in a game, you go, well, that's just buy a better graphics card. So there is this distinct difference between what we would like military sims to do and what they can actually do, ideally, because they've ticked some training needs analysis box. You get the simulation you get. Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's that's probably an interesting point to bring up graphics card, if that's your solution. But is that always the answer in terms of... <sighs> speeding things up or getting a better frame rate uh, is what you call it as a leading question john just in case you didn't catch that yeah thanks for that so the short answer is yes but to a point so one of the problems we have is because the central processing unit also plays a part in that rendering pipeline the desire is often to do the easy thing 
and the way modern day PCs are constructed. I mean, let's face it, if you think of all of the large primes, they don't make graphics cards from scratch. They don't make motherboards and CPUs and hard drives and memory from scratch. They're using commodity products. They might be doing really clever stuff with it, but it's, you know, you don't buy a graphics card from a large prime. So it's going to be the AMDs and the NVIDIAs of this world. So it's very tempting when you take the lid off your PC, your simulation system, and look inside, and there's this thing that's been in there for a couple of years and seems to be relatively easy to update. You disconnect it, you pull it out, you've got a more expensive, newer one, you push it in, you connect it all back up, you run the new drivers, and you've got a newer graphics card. But if the graphics card is waiting for the central processing unit, the CPU, to actually hand it the information because your CPU has got lots and lots of data to process. Maybe it isn't just worried about creating the graphics. Maybe it's trying to do some behavioral modeling or physics modeling of your weapons system. So it's got lots to do. It's going to spend too long giving information to your graphics cards. And it's possible you could put a really shiny new graphics card in and the system apparently not run any faster. So it's very tempting just to keep putting new graphics cards in because the way CPU manufacturers work, in particular Intel, I'm not blaming them for doing this, but an Intel CPU only works on the same motherboard for two generations, two years. So if, if you're in mod procurement and you buy a motherboard with a CPU and memory, and a graphics card in, in two years' time, Intel won't make an easy upgrade path for that computer. You will buy a new motherboard, new CPU. It might need new cooling. It might need a new type of memory. And suddenly, your very simple approach of unplug old graphics card, plug new graphics card in, that doesn't work. You have to replace the, effectively the whole computer for all intents and purposes. And I guess it will depend on the application itself, because I think some applications are naturally CPU limited and others have sort of, yeah, they've done more work to sort of split the problem out to the GPU and Indeed. deal with some of these bottlenecks. Yeah. So, for example, virtual battle space is obviously quite a common application within defense now. One of the things they've tried to do in VBS to make it run faster, especially if you're running lots of behavioral models, is to fire up effectively these SIM clients. And what these SIM clients are doing is on a modern day CPUs, these very large scale multi-core CPUs. By running these SIM clients, you're basically like doing exactly what you said there, Colin. You're spreading that load out so that you're not massively overloading one or two key cores. You're actually trying to spread it against the four, eight, 16 cores in your CPU which, if it's architectured well, will take some of the pressure off the cores that are actually dealing with getting content to your graphics card. So you end up with this thing, Are you, you'll hear people go, oh, it's a CPU bottleneck, or it's a graphics card bottleneck. You end up with a problem somewhere. And sometimes you don't realize that you've got a bottleneck until you say, for example, upgrade your graphics card to a point where you're getting little or no performance increase, irrespective of how new and shiny your graphics card is, at which point you go, well, okay, is the CPU now the bottleneck? By bottleneck, in that 
rendering pipeline. What we see in the games industry is more of a move to amazing graphics and photorealism. Is that sort of where we can expect this to go for the military side or is there, is there more to it? I think the military would love to have the absolute best and shiniest graphics, irrespective of whether it is required. (laughs) Because the little chat we had prior to the podcast, a lot of people like those very old, quite pixelated games, and they're entertaining and they have utility. So while there is this desire for people coming in, looking at their modern-day consoles or even their smartphones and going, well, the graphics are really good on my smartphone. When I sit in this military sim, I'm expecting bleeding-edge technology, and it doesn't look very good. That kind of potentially puts people off. It's hard to explain that actually the underpinning training, the underpinning physics models are really, really good, and they're designed to do exactly what you need you have to sort of get over the hump of the graphics not looking very good compared to your PlayStation that you've got at home or your mobile phone that you've played on the train on the way into work. I can see why the military want better graphics. What I think the military potentially fail to understand is that that comes at not just a huge computational cost of the thing you need to run it on, who's building those 3D models, who's building the textures that make those models look really good in that photorealistic environment. Because you're going from models that you can get away with that might have a few thousands or even tens of thousands of polygons in. And that sounds like a lot, and it can be. But if you want photorealism, then you're into the high-end tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of polygons per object in your scene. And that has a huge knock-on. I think Yeah, I agree. And I, before I say what I'm going to say, I will say that it's the cost. We don't have the billions of pounds to spend on the next Call of Duty for defense. So yeah. that's the biggest challenge. Absolutely. However, there is a place for good graphics and a stable platform to train on because it's yes. about buy-in for troops, like you said. And my example is the idea for my original virtual reality company came from my time at Sandhurst when I was doing a training exercise behind a keyboard and mouse using a, mm-hmm. a synthetic training platform. I won't say which. <clears throat> and <laughs> it's and it was troops weren't bought in because they didn't have the underwhelming yeah i can imagine they didn't have the context and they didn't have the the understanding of why they were doing it and why it didn't look like the same as their call of duty they were playing back in their lines and so they just came sat sat down it felt like they weren't being invested in and therefore they were just weren't inclined to engage with it there's an informing piece that needs to be done there's also a leadership piece the leaders need to explain why they're there what they're going to get out of it and the pros and cons of what they're doing and why they're doing it behind a keyboard, which is interesting. We're going off piste here, but okay. I, I wanted it's to good. add my little dit. It's good. Yeah. Interesting, Tom. I think we've all got our experiences and mine's similar but different. I remember there was an upgrade on a simulator to a new engine. Mm-hmm. But to your point, they use the same database. So when they put all the models over <laughs> and all the terrain, and, and, and the users go, so... I don't know about you, but it looks the same to me. But yeah, it does, because it's the same content. Yeah. 
There's a slight difference, and I think that's but to your it, point. Yeah. You know, you've got to consider all of it, not yeah. just oh, we'll just upgrade the that component or even that engine. Everything has to change. Yeah. And, and back to Tom's point, right? Then what's your budget? Because yeah. if you look at a Call of Duty game, and you actually, you know, I mean, AAA games now that they're, I think they exceed what movies take to make yeah. in terms of the money. Literally and, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. to make a top end game now. But they'll, so they'll think, might, they might make a billion dollars back in a few weeks in sales, so they don't right. really mind. That's right. So, <laughs> okay, so, so I think just just digging into some there's some really interesting areas. So we'll sort of just go through them piece yeah. by piece. Yeah. VR and mixed reality is a we sort of covered that. Yeah. But how does this apply to VR? What are the sort of important parts that we need to consider? Yeah, I need to find out. I adore VR. I'm one of those people that gets really, really bad motion sickness. So the choice of applications I choose to use in VR have to be quite carefully controlled because I don't like being sick. But VR is fascinating because what I've seen with people in the military, they kind of think VR should be awesome for things like dismounted infantry. You've got the headset on, you can move your head around. But unless you've got an infinite play area, you're now not physically walking around. So you're using some kind of input device, be it the hand controllers you're holding or an Xbox 360 controller to push yourself around the battlefield or whatever technique you're trying to train on. So the looking around is really good, but the actual experience can be slightly underwhelming. Where we found VR works well is when you have some grounding in reality. So, for example, a driving simulation, which could obviously be a game, like something like we use at the university to demonstrate this, something like Project Cars. You're physically holding the steering wheel and you're, the, the virtual hands kind of line up with your physical hands on the steering wheel, so you, you buy into the fact that you are actually sat in this car. In a military sim, we sit them down, we put their hands on the steering wheel, line their feet up with the pedals and then they drive around the terrain and that way they can look over and they can check their mirrors and and that and look across to the passenger side and that helps with the buy-in but beyond that you're either going to have a computer graphics experience where you need to be tethered i.e there's a physical cable between the headset and the computer that is actually delivering the computer graphics into the VR headset. So that potentially can limit quite significantly the range of things you can actually do in that VR headset. Or what's becoming increasingly popular with things like the MetaQuest series of headsets is these standalone headsets, but they're using the onboard processing power of the VR headset. And that Technology is kind of mobile phone technology. Now, we've already said mobile phone technology is pretty good, but it's not a high-end gaming PC pretty good. So to sort of frame it in the VR world, so the real-time graphics applications are as much about maybe distributing the processing because you can either have it on the headset or on the cloud or on the local machine. So it's about distributing that and maybe not just about the quality of the graphics, but some other issues like latency that are going to affect usability more important than the good graphics. Yes. So when this generation of VR, because VR has been around for a really long time, there used to be this big thing that 
you had to have 90 frames per second. That was the sort of bare minimum for the early HTC Vives and the early Oculus Rifts. It was like, if it's less than 90, as the person's moving their head left and right, they're going to feel sick because the thing's going to be jittering as they move across the screen, and that's terrible. And we want people to have a good VR experience because we want people to buy into VR. And that became the sort of de facto thing. And then other headsets came out and things like the early Oculus Quest, and it's like, oh, 72 hertz is fine. And it's like, when did 72 hertz become acceptable? That's, I think, both experience with what they can get away with, but also the Quest was designed to be a standalone headset. And therefore, by reducing the frame rate to 72 hertz, you ease the amount of time processing power and graphics card power requirements because you're driving off a battery inside your VR headset. And I've used the Quest and I quite like it. You know, 72 hertz is noticeably different from the 90 hertz you get in the the more modern PC connected headsets. But for the right kind of application, where you're not winging your head around too much, you can kind of get away with those kind of frame rates. And I guess that's something people, again, I forget, but actually battery life is important mm-hmm. in certain applications. So you might optimize for that. Yes. And we've seen that certainly in the commercial world. Yeah. We could dive in this for a whole episode as we have. But another thing that comes up, you see quite a lot through the generations, you know, mm-hmm. is ray tracing. You know, that's not a new concept, but how does that relate then to what we're seeing? Does that have a role to play? But it does. So I find ray tracing fascinating because in many respects, it's kind of a physics thing, and that's kind of where I came from. The thing about ray tracing in computed terms is it's cheating (laughs) because it makes the graphics look so much better. But the way light works in the real world is sun in the sky, light goes absolutely everywhere, and some of it, bounces off objects in the in your field of view and therefore some of it bounces off those objects and goes into your eyeballs and therefore you see the thing that light has just bounced off. In computing terms, that's a nightmare because 99.999999% of the rays would be wasted because they don't come through the screen into your human eyeball. So ray tracing cheats, and this is very simple, but this is the basic premise. It knows the size of your screen. It knows how many dots are on the screen. And it knows where the light sources are on a moment-by-moment basis because it's got that rendering pipeline. So if there is a sun in the sky or a light on the top of a tank, it knows where that light is. And it's only interested on the rays that would come from that light or from the sun that would bounce off something that would come through at least one pixel on the screen because that screen is pretending to be your eyeball. That's how you're viewing the scene. So what ray tracing does is actually reverse the process. It casts rays into the scene and basically is only interested in the ones that bounce off objects towards the light sources. So it looks really good. It's completely cheating, but you get some really nice effects because things like shadows should happen automatically because things which are partially in shade don't get as many rays going to the light, and therefore that scene is darker. The colour of the pixel your graphics card is going to draw in naturally gets darker. 
So other really good things for the military, that makes ray tracing a, a very attractive technology, is sniper rifles or any kind of sensor which would cause potentially cause glint because the rays really do bounce off the lens or the sensor in the scene. So if, if you want to train a sniper how to hide and not position himself so that the enemy gets the glint off his weapon, a ray tracing system would actually allow that to happen. Equally, if you're casting loads of rays into the scene, that's generally the visual spectrum. But if you know the properties of all of the objects in the scene at different frequencies, say near IR, so you wanted to do thermal imagery or other kind of sensors that are down in the IR spectrum, you've already cast all those rays into the scene, so you know where all those rays are going. If you know the, the IR surface properties of those objects, the heat of that engine, then you use those rays again. You don't have to do any more cheating. You don't have to really do any more physics modeling because you're just getting the actual effect of the rays being cast. So you've already done it once for the visual spectrum. Effectively, you're getting the other spectrums, the IR spectrum, for free. And if you've got a good atmospherics model, you get different dust particles or water in the atmosphere. They will affect how the ray propagates through the scene. You get the effect of dust, smoke, fog, effectively for free. Those rays diminish as they move through the scene. What's interesting is it, it, I think it used to be sort of the other techniques and ray tracing, and now you see sort of a mix of techniques yeah. which is borrowed from ray tracing. One of the interesting comments on one of the latest releases of very popular engines was yeah. that most of the work to make it look realistic was all about lighting work and the different there's like seven different types of lighting on yes. it. But and they showed an example and said this is actually the same model from our old engine. The we're just lighting it better. Yeah, the we're just lighting it differently. Yeah, the complexity That's what is makes the same. it look you know, like uh, it was a car and it looks a glass uh, reflection off the paint the way it yeah. does. And it was a real time shadows and all this sort of stuff, which if you did it the old way was quite difficult because you have to program it all. Another area that's, that we can deep dive into. But so for mobile devices, then, is it the same sort of techniques or are there different approaches for mobile use? So mobiles are interesting because their screens are generally smaller. Not generally, let's face it, compared to even a, like a, a relatively more a, a laptop, <laughs> a good, big, chunky mobile phone is going to have probably as many pixels, but they're much, much smaller. So they can kind of get away with just making the best of the limitation they have in processing power. I mean, modern day mobile phones will run Fortnite Mobile. That's running effectively the Unreal Engine. It has the limitations of processing power that mobile technology has at the resolution, but the physical size of that screen, you can get away with a lot more. You can slightly diminish the number of triangles in the scene. You can slightly diminish some of the special effects that would take up a lot of processing power because it's quite hard to see those effects at the very fine detail even though the pixels are there that could be coloured in, you can get away with a bit of lack of finesse on a mobile phone because <clears throat> the screens are smaller. And I think the other thing is people with mobile phones are expecting to be 
permanently connected by one means or another, your home Wi-Fi, your business Wi-Fi, your 5G and 4G masts. So there is that potential that not all of the content is automatically on your phone at all times. This is still relatively new, this idea of doing some of the processing in a cloud-based system where some of the processing load or some of the computational load from the graphics is effectively partly done in the cloud, and therefore some of it can be delivered in addition to what your mobile phone can do. But again, you would notice if you were in a car and your car went into a tunnel, and therefore you've lost your 5G signal. I mean, that would probably screw up the game unless it was a single-player game. But the the fact is is that if we do that, then people will again begin to expect a level of fidelity that possibly can't always be delivered. I love the idea of, of having more stuff. I mean, my current mobile phone, for the first time ever, USB-C, plug USB-C in with a HDMI connector at the other end, straight into my monitor. And then the phone goes, ah, HDMI connection. Would you like to go into desktop mode? And it's like, I have no idea what desktop mode is, but yes, please. Um, And I play the card game Gwent online. And to have a mobile app running on a TV screen, you know, a 4K TV screen, with all of the, the detail I would normally expect from a PC, but it's running off my mobile phone. From a trend yeah, so point I, of view. I, 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 yeah. I wonder if we're seeing sort of convergence with like VR, the mobile, and, and desktop all sort of going the, to one. Because but... all those technologies are feeding off mm. each other, which is mm. fascinating. Apologies, John, because, yet again, this is just a huge subject and it's really <laughs> difficult to know where to stop. But <laughs> as ever, we've bitten off more than we can chew, and this is a topic that probably lasts several several episodes. But I think that's a really good primer. So thank you again for turning up for a good hour it's been a pleasure and thank you for having me on i've really enjoyed it yeah us too you might get careful you might get asked again (laughs) (laughs) so i'm not sure john will thank me for saying this but People will know that if you, you know, listeners come on the podcast as a guest and Colin tells people that, that I, I am a bit of a, a sound critic. I want to make sure that we get the best quality sound that we can from the user's microphone just to ensure that you, the listener, gets the smoothest listening experience as we possibly can. We don't always achieve it and we acknowledge that, but we strive to do it. So that was being recorded from John's toilet. <laughs> and, and I think it came across fine <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> and no one would know unless you'd mentioned it. Yeah, and I wouldn't do such a thing. Impolite to mention such a thing. <laughs> just to be clear to our listeners, he wasn't on the toilet. Well, I couldn't see, so you just, I didn't <laughs> want to ask. I think of all people, John does require a chuck-up. One, to come on, on and uh, talk about his passion, but also one of those people that work quietly in the background. Most people know him, but don't really see what he does unless you get into one of his classes. But always a pleasure to talk to and, and definitely one to ask if you've got some lingering questions. If you enjoyed that, if that was useful, please do review the rest of the education episodes. Also, as ever, go to Warfighter Podcast on LinkedIn. Best place to get in contact with us or in communication with us before Colin shouts at me for using an inappropriate word. Or if you're old school, email us at contact at warfighterpodcast.com. <laughs> I guess any suggestions for future subjects as well, that would be great. Yeah.